Hi, I'm Amanda McCooney. And I'm April Klimkevich, and this is Her Step Forward, where we share stories from women who step up, step out, and step forward into careers and lives they love. Anne Hirschman Shrimp considers herself a true dandelion. Born in Staten Island, New York in 1946, her earliest activism was with her mom and grandmother supporting women's health choices. Anne skipped seventh grade and spent much of high school at the United Nations. After a year at Wagner College, then Bayonne Hospital School of Nursing, Anne then attended University of Miami Family Nurse Practitioner Program and has been a nurse practitioner ever since. She became more involved with protests and activism after she graduated. Anne worked with the Medical Committee for Human Rights and with others helping to invent and train street medics. In addition to healthcare and public health, Anne also worked with anti-war veterans since 1967 and has been on the board of Vietnam Veterans Against the War. At the age of 64, she attended University of Liverpool online and got her Master's of Public Health in 2010. Anne is still working and supporting the community she is involved in, as well as being a proud mom of James and his wife, Jessica, and Gramwich to Emily and AJ. Welcome, Anne. We're so excited that you're here to join us. Well, thanks for having me. We're, we're so excited. Yes, we're delighted you could be here, and especially during the times of coronavirus and during the times of Black Lives Matter, having somebody who has a master's in public health and who is an activist and has been for many years, we're just delighted that you said yes to interviewing with us. So thank you. <laughs> well, thank you for keeping me relevant at the age of 73. I well, I think it. you've kept yourself relevant. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it has just worked out really well for being timely um, in regards to our podcast. So that's really awesome. <laughs> so I think, Anne, first of all, can you tell our audience, what is a dandelion? Okay, a dandelion is a proud person who has grown up on Staten Island in the city of New York. And Staten Island is a little island that proudly is part of the city and yet struggles to be. And people <laughs> from Staten Island, people from Staten Island grow up in some difficult soil and not very fruitful sometimes, but boy, we flower <laughs> and we raise our proud heads and we turn into gray-haired fuzzy things and get blown all over the world to enrich <laughs> other communities. But we always have our roots in Staten Island. So oh, that's I us. love that. That's so cool. I love that. And of course, my mom being from Staten Island and, and you having grown up next door to my mom, we were teasing about, you know, me telling my mom, hey, you're a dandelion too. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So hi, Eileen. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, well, I'm so glad that we established that um, before we tell the rest of your incredible story. So starting at the beginning, you've said that you've been at protests since before you were born. Tell us about that. Well, apparently the story goes that my grandmother told me was that in May of 1946, there was a gathering of women in a protest mode to try and obtain legal status for birth control in places where birth control was not yet legal. That was May of 1946. I was born in September of 1946, so I was cooking at the time inside my <laughs> little tiny mother. 
<laughs> that's great. I love that. Yeah, your whole your whole life from before you were born. That's cool. Yeah, that's what a legacy. <laughs> Third generation of kick ass women. That's me. <laughs> so, Anne, you have mentioned to me in the past that 1963 was a time when your eyes were opened to white privilege. Can you tell us about that time? Well, I think what blew my eyes open was the day I broke my ankle at college, at Wagner College. And I was driven home by a really great guy who I knew, um, who I don't, who's, I don't have his permission to use his name, so I won't. But he was about 6'2", and he was a ball player, and he was African-American. And he drove me to my little tiny street on Staten Island and picked me up in his arms because I wasn't yet able to stand on my cast and carried me into the house. And by the time we hit the house, my mother's phone was ringing off the hook with horror that an African-American person would be carrying me into the house. Mom had very little patience with people who were stupid, ignorant, and racist. So she apparently had told several of them off before we got to the door. <laughs> but as we got to the door, she said something to the person on the phone like, they're going to live in sin in the upstairs apartment. <laughs> <laughs> she had enough by then my mother was four foot eight inches tall she weighed about 97 pounds uh and the guy carrying me was huge and he nearly dropped me and my mother looked at him <laughs> in all seriousness and said don't worry nobody will get you without coming through me <laughs> it was comical to the nth degree however it was not funny because what it meant was that that many racists had pushed my mother's buttons that day mm -hmm. I had never realized how dangerous it was to be African-American and doing somebody a favor that's what blew my eyes open mm -hmm. so for me seeing pictures of people who are harmed and even killed just for walking around while African-American is unfortunately not a surprise, but I've been fighting against that bullshit for the rest of my life. So there you go. <laughs> That's great. And I think, you know, a lot of people are coming to this understanding of white privilege now for the first time. And your experience of that and understanding what that was on a deeper level happened in 1963. And so I think that it's important to say, hey, whenever you got here, however you got here, you're here now. So let's do something about it. Let's work together. Yes. So, you know, it's, it's okay if you're getting there right now and this is your first understanding of what's going on. But, you know, other people have been here for longer. Let's, let's listen to them. Let's, let's learn something and let's move forward together. Absolutely. And as we see more and more different um, communities of color are experiencing things and being more public about their experience. For instance, in New York City, again, my home is New York City. So in New York City, Chinatown has always been a different and unusual culture, even for New Yorkers. But in the current climate with our president blaming things on China that aren't necessarily the fault of Chinese people who have lived in New York for the last three generations, we're still seeing an uptick in racial violence against 
Asians and against African-Americans and all of the people of color. We need, as white folks, I think we need to be aware of that and do a lot of self-checking about the microaggressions that we're not even aware that we're doing. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, like you said, with a lot of Black people and people of color stepping forward right now and using their voices and the venue, um, allowing voices to be heard in a different way than maybe it had before, you know, now is the time. Now is the time to, um, you know, for everybody to take a look inward and say, what am I doing and how can I help? But also to take a look outward and say, what are others doing and how can I plug into that? Mm -hmm. How can I be an ally to people of color, an ally to the LGBTQ plus community, an ally to folks who are economically disadvantaged, an ally to indigenous folks? And how can I use my my privilege Mm -hmm. to make sense? You know, how, not, not only recognize that I have it and drill myself out of the microaggressions that I was brought up to not even notice, but how can I step in and say, okay, I am shoulder to shoulder with you to any extent physically that I can be mentally, spiritually, and never letting down that. I mean, as I say, I, I carry gear all the time. I've wound up doing medical care in, in places where I didn't expect to because I do carry gear. That's my contribution to how can I be an activist all the time. And I know that sounds crazy, but that's who I've been since before I was born. So I only know how to be me. I love that. And we've heard that you're writing a book. Can you tell us a little more? We'd love to know more about it. Okay. Well, it's still in the ideas stage and it's, it is, there's some words in the, you know, in the memory of my computer It will probably be called something like the New York rules because I keep spouting them all the time and people keep saying, where do you get that? Like, what (laughs) is, is, you know, New York rule number one, what is, is deal with it. You know, it's like the, (laughs) we didn't have to worry about pulling up our big girl panties. We already knew that, you know, you had to deal with life as it came and you couldn't stick your head in the sand and say, oh, I don't like that. Well, you cannot like that all you want, but that's what it is. It's like saying you don't want stuff to drop when you let go of it, but gravity's a law, folks. So <laughs> New York rule number one, and, and other rules, you know, little silly little rules, like, you know, if there's no ass in it, that could be your chair because we don't have reserved seating, you know, stuff like that. <laughs> don't cut in line, you could be dead. But also it, it, it follows some of my family's best mottos, like my grandmother's motto. There's no such thing as a bad orgasm. If it's bad, we don't have them. And all sorts of other discussions. Yeah, I heard that first when I was uh, six. um, (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Talk about wise beyond your years. (laughs) No, you see what happened again. My grandmother wasn't real patient with stupid people either. So, uh, so I was sitting in her kitchen drinking my weekly Pepsi, and her neighbor came over and said, "You know those young men who live next door to you are homosexuals." And my grandmother looked up and said to the woman, well, you've just proven something I've always thought. People who have orgasms are nicer than people who don't. (laughs) (laughs) And then grandma looked at me and said, and I'll explain all that to you when they leave. And she did. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. That was the beginning of that discussion. (laughs) Wow. I love it. And 
Yeah, and, and my, my cute little mother would say things like, well, you know, I believe in sex and learning till rigor mortis. And she was pointing out, as the head of a senior center at that time in her life, that people kept having sex pretty much all their lives. Oh, my God, what an idea. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it kind of goes back to the New York rules. Like, tell it yep. like it is. Call it yep. like it is. It's not, exactly. it's not not happening. So you can turn a blind eye all you want, but this is life and this is what's happening. <laughs> right. On, on our, as my mother would point out late in her life, on our little block, we finally had, finally, near the end of her life, had some diversity on the block as far as racially. But back in 1960 or 61 somewhere, uh, she knew about the first transgender person on the block. I didn't know about that person until two years later. Everybody came out to my mother. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I mean, we grew up with hiding in the sand, but in my family, we're not allowed to do that. We were supposed to just look at it and deal with it and move forward and love people where they were. And, and be who you are and let people be who they are. Yes. I love that. Incredible. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Unless, of course, they're racist assholes in which case we <laughs> attempt to persuade them of their fault. <laughs> and in the recent New York Times article about you and let me just say bravo. I think very few people can say that, oh, hey, there's a New York Times article about me. Why don't you read about me? <laughs> I have to say this just once. It was a little like reading my own obituary, but, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's called Meet the Grandmother of Street Medics. And you were quoted as encouraging a stand against war and oppression for the Medical Committee for Human Rights. So if you could talk to us about the intersection between the medical community and standing for what's right, even when it's not popular. Okay, so brave people like uh, June Finer, who I have, and Oliver Fine, and a whole mess of other people, um, Quentin Young, a mess of physicians, probably maybe 10 years older than me, um, and down to my age, started marching with the civil rights movement um, before I could uh, in at the very beginning of Dr. King's work. And they were there to provide medical presence, but they were also there to provide the gravitas of having people with professional alphabet soup after their name in white coats saying, hey, we are here, we are medical professionals, and we are saying that Racism and oppression and war are wrong, and we are willing to put our bodies out there to protest for that. Initially, when MCHR was doing medical presence, they had a, an idea that they would be neutral because that was the stance and always has been the stance of medicine. If people get hurt, you treat them. And MCHR would say, we are, not, we are here to provide medical presence for everyone, which is like, and I wrote an article about this, and I'll bring it to modern terms, it's like the argument that tries to divide Black Lives Matter from all lives matter. We would love okay, to good. hear more about that. All right. All right. So now when we talk about, when we talk about Black Lives Matter, what we're saying is that Black people and people of color have been oppressed for so long that as one t-shirt says, Racism is so ingrained in the United States that anti-racism looks anti-American to some people. 
So Black Lives Matter is an important thing to be stating. Yes, of course, all lives matter, but all lives matter can't be true until Black Lives Matter. So in the beginning of Medical Committee for Human Rights, they were saying we have to treat all people. We are here for all people. And that really was not true. Yes, we would treat anybody that got hurt, but we were there putting our bodies on the line saying what you are doing racially, what you are doing to oppress other people, what you are doing to kill other people is wrong. And we are on the side of the demonstrators. We are the demonstrators. We are the people. And so that was the change probably around 65 to 67 that Medical Committee for Human Rights morphed from we're neutral, we're outside of this, we're above this, to no, we are people, we have to be shoulder to shoulder, we are protesters. And so that's where Medical Committee for Human Rights grew into the organization that it became. And that's when we started needing street medics because they needed more medical presence in the streets with demonstrators. And we had not enough doctors, nurses, there were barely even EMTs at that point, uh, historically. And so we started training street medics. And that's where, you know, that's where I started, I guess, making that history was three or four of us gathered in my apartment one night and wrote the first course for street medics in New York. And some of that content is still part of the street medic courses that are going on all over the country and have been since then. And I still work with a wonderful street medic collective in Philadelphia and am in and am, have am known by and have connections with many other medic collectives around the country and I'm probably prouder of that than anything else. It must be amazing to to know that something that you did because it was right has gone on to become training material and manuals and courses for others who are coming on board. And, and, and proud as hell of every single street medic that has ever worked anywhere. I have had experiences such as the fact that Rachel Corey who is a young woman who was a street medic who was killed in the occupied territories in Israel several, many years ago now, was the student of my student. Um, I, I, people I've trained have trained others. Many of the street medics have gone on to careers in medicine. They've decided, hey, we like doing this, and they've become EMTs, paramedics, doctors, nurses, any kind of health professional you can name. And I'm really, really proud of the fact that street medics still exist, that street medics are worldwide, and that, you know, my little two-page course that we made up back in the day is still helping to inform people and help keep communities safe. The important part is getting out there and trying to keep communities safe. And street medics have evolved into community activists all the time. When there are not demonstrations, street medics, such as the collective in Philadelphia, have free clinics, are working with the homeless, are working with community groups to provide health care. I could not be prouder of anything in this lifetime as my connection with street medics. I think that's such an incredible story that your work has been the foundation of so many different people, many movements. I just, I don't have the words. So that's incredible work. 
So I can. And re- but remember, it's not it's not me as an individual. Right. I'm, correct. I'm, I'm loud, and I'm I'm loud, and I have the the luxury of being able to be public. I had an immensely supportive family. I mean, my mother's reaction to my first arrest when I called in it was like sixty four, and people were being disowned by their parents for getting arrested and they're they you know we're all calling making our one phone call because the lawyers had already been called so we all called our parents and everyone else's parents were like oh my god your mother's gonna die and you know she's crying and I get on the phone with my mother and I say mom I was arrested first words out of her mouth I am so jealous (laughs) my grandmother had been arrested with Margaret Sanger once and she found out that women in our family have a hand-wrist deformity that keeps us from being easy to handcuff. And she taught me that trick. And, <laughs> and so, you know, I, she had gotten arrested, and then I got arrested. My poor mother, the little tiny thing, couldn't get arrested. She agitated for the eight-hour day for nurses. She agitated for women's health. Nobody would bust her because she looked like she would break. So... <laughs> And then she married my six-foot father, and I think they thought he'd break them, but that was another story. But still, you know, so when I got arrested, it was like I was totally supported. So I never had to hide my activism. I never had to feel like I had to compartmentalize it. And I've always been very public with jobs and everyone else. I've had an FBI record since I was freaking 16. So there's no use in me saying to an employer I've never had any political, inter, you know, involvement because it's been public and I'm fine with that. And I find that that's important. Yeah. And I think, you know, when, um, when you're going against the letter of the law to, to protest or, um, to say, you know, this isn't right. Well, then you're, you're going against the law. So by, you know, by right and by the law, they can arrest you, but that doesn't mean that the law is right. (laughs) I kind of have a different take on it. Okay. Okay. I have indeed engaged in civil disobedience where we purposefully challenged a law by breaking it or where we purposefully blockaded something, which is clearly in violation of statute. But 99% of the times that I have had negative interactions with law enforcement, negative being defined by being arrested, detained, or beat up, uh, in some, or shot, 99% of the time I was doing nothing that was against any law. I was doing nothing but providing medical care. There was a court decision, uh, Finer versus the state of New York or Finer versus the city of New York, where June Finer, one of the original docs in Medical Committee for Human Rights, took all the way to the Supreme Court of the state the fact that she was arrested for providing medical care, something which she is licensed to do. And indeed, our licenses have a certain amount of intention that we should be providing medical care when we can. Mm-hmm. And so, therefore, we weren't breaking law 99% of the time, but yet we were beaten, arrested, taken to court, threatened with various things. Any of those things could happen. I have gotten arrested on purpose several times by intervening 
in a situation where the police were creating damage to a human being. And I would intervene by trying to start fixing the damage. And the police would usually take that as interfering with them and arrest me too. And that was because I could get out of handcuffs. And if they arrested me, I could still provide first aid in the paddy wagon. So that's mm -hmm. something that I've done a couple of times more than a couple of times, but mostly we were great. Mostly we weren't breaking any laws. The people who were breaking the laws, the people who were rioting were by and large in my experience, since I started doing this in the mid sixties, by and large, the riots were police riots. Law enforcement was causing the riot. The most egregious example in the sixties was probably Chicago in 68, where they herded everybody into a park and threw tear gas into the middle of the crowd and refused to let the crowd disperse. Where I grew up, we call that torture, not crowd control. And that is something that is going on today just as it did then. Nothing much has changed tactically, except that they've upped the ante on, on some of the weapons being more destructive and more potentially lethal. New York City does not, by and large, use tear gas, canister tear gas, because they have subways. And there is a danger because tear gas is heavier than air that tear gas could permeate the subways. So New York City, when they use chemical weapons, tends to, tend to use the in-person up close pepper spray sort of weapon rather than canisters like they're using out in Portland. Wow. Well, Anne, thank you for, for clarifying that for us because I think you know, hearing from somebody who ha is on the ground and has been on the ground, I think is just so important to know what's going on. So, Anne, you've said that you've survived two bouts of cancer and that the coming together of all the people in your life to celebrate your recovery was some of the most fun you've had. And those people include the Wiccan community, the social justice community, veterans and activists. Can you tell us more about how this has helped to shape you? Wow. <clears throat> well, I've just been unbelievably blessed with having become part of all of these communities. Um, veterans. Okay, how did I get involved with veterans? There were seven guys back in 1967 who decided that they had been in the service and they had been in Vietnam and they had come to the conclusion that the war in Vietnam was absolutely wrong and had to be stopped. And couple of them, I believe, were still active duty. Most of them were just recently discharged veterans. And they came into the Vietnam Peace Parade Committee, where I was working to organize medics, and said, we want to march in the Peace Parade. And they were welcomed, um, which did not jibe with many people's ideas. Many people thought, peaceniks and veterans, you know, they hate each other. And peaceniks spit on veterans. Well, not in New York City when I was there. So they decided to march in the peace parade and the peace parade committee decided that they would march at the head of the parade because they, we felt at the time that the gravitas they added to the situation was so important that we could not put them in the middle of the pack to be ignored. This had to be known by people that soldiers coming back from a war were now protesting that war for good reason. And Many of the folks in the office were younger than me and not as experienced. I mean, mind you, I was still in my 20s, but they looked at me and said, would you be their medic? Because some of the guys were disabled and had issues. And I said, yeah, they won't need a medic. But yeah, I'll be happy to march with them. And during the course of that day, we bonded like you wouldn't believe. 
and Jan Barry, who is still an activist, even more of an activist than I am, and the rest of the guys, the rest of the seven, formed Vietnam Veterans Against the War. That was the formation of that organization, which I am still on the board of. And that anti-war veterans have grown from that nascent little seven people. And so I've been working with veterans since then. And that's a big part of my community. And there are a whole bunch of people. And then, of course, I am a practicing witch. So the witch, the witchcraft community, specifically reclaiming witchcraft, I taught at their witch camps and done all that stuff, have been amazingly supportive. And other activists and the medics and friends have all come together when I had cancer, especially the second time, to support me through it. I've had breast cancer twice, once in 96, which was I had radiation and surgery. And then again in 2010, 2011, actually 2011, 2012, where I had chemo and radiation. And the evidence of some of that collaboration exists, and I will send you a picture uh, of this. I lost my hair when I had chemo during my second bout with breast cancer, and I knew I was going to be bald, and I'm not a person to sit around and moan and bitch about shit that is has to happen. I'm a New Yorker, you know, what is, is New York rules. So I <laughs> tend to try and have fun with almost anything. So there I am facing cancer, having chemo, and my hair's falling out, and I called a young friend of mine who's a witch and also a then, act, a then working stripper. She's now retired, and she's an amazing body artist. And I called her, and I said, listen, we're having our usual party at my boyfriend Brian's for veterans and peace activists and witches. Can you come, and can you bring your henna kit and do henna art on my bald head so I can get through chemo with some amusement? So in the middle of a party, which was also a politically political organizing situation, with witches and veterans and activists out on Long Island, um, my friend Lila came in and decorated my head with henna, which lasted through the entire chemo. And I am still proud of the fact that I rocked bald. <laughs> and, and I could not have had that attitude and gotten through that with the kind of amazing ease that I did without all of those communities sending me energy and feeding me good goo, as one of my witch friends said, and mm -hmm. doing things like tenning my hair in the middle of the Christmas party. It was epic. So, yeah, that I guess that's the best story that it illustrates how, how to get through cancer with the help of your friends. I think that's wonderful. And I think it's wonderful too, that just because people decide to be a part of different groups, it doesn't mean that those groups can't get along and work together towards the same goals. And so I exactly. think that that's really cool. Absolutely. I think also, you know, Anne, just having so many different groups of people there to support you during your, your cancer and recovery just goes to show how many different groups that, you know, you've left such a mark on them that they all came together to support you and, you know, at a time when you probably needed it the most. So I think that's, that's great. It, it, it really, you know, it absolutely affected my healing. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I, I can't say enough about the power of community. In my case, communities. 
Pick two. Pick five. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you guys, April, you've seen my Facebook page posts. It yes. could be anything, you know. <laughs> it could be my rich friend Lonnie Murray telling me what mushrooms I can eat. It could be veterans protesting water rights situations in, you know, in the West. It could, anything, you know. <laughs> I love it. You never know who's on my Facebook page. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Anne, I would love to know, because you have so much good advice and you're a wealth of information, I would love to know your best piece of advice for women looking to take their next step forward. One part of me wants to say lift up foot, move forward. (laughs) But that's not what's needed. What's needed is to know that I never planned to be the grandmother of street medics or any of that other portentous poop. What I've done all of my life is what seemed to be right to do next. So when civil rights happened, it seemed to me that my need was to be a part of that in whatever small way I could. So I went out in the streets and then I learned that I could be useful as a medic. And then I started being a medic and started training medics. This was not any grand plan. I think if I had waited for a grand plan, I'd still be waiting. What I did was what my mother and grandmother did and what they taught me, which was to, if you think it's right, do it. And if it has consequences, deal with them. And in my life, there have been consequences. I've had a bunch of concussions. I've been shot at. I've had, you know, all that stuff. But I can't say that any of that is entirely negative. I learned from every single thing that happened to me. And I get asked by nurses, for instance, who want to enter activism, well, did it affect your career? I don't think so. I have had continuous employment. I'm still working full time. My employers all know who I am. Activism has not, in my mind, hampered me. In point of fact, my activism has done nothing but enrich me. As you just pointed out, it helped me through cancer. So when women are feeling timid, I say get a hold of other women who have like minds and talk about it and see what it is you want to do. It's always important not to act all by yourself. You're giving me a lot of credit for things that I was a part of. I happened to be there when we wrote the course. But Kathy Finn and and Barbara Yippie could have written that course without me. That wasn't anything unique to me. We were together. We knew what was right to come next, and we did it. Find a community, even if it's two people or three people. Decide what you want to do. Step out and start doing it. Mm -hmm. And you will find that it will enrich. Yes, People are in danger. Yes, sometimes this involves potentially losing something important. I don't know, your life, your health. Yeah, we take those risks when we think that they're important. We would all take those risks for somebody we immediately know and love. We would all take those risks for our significant other or our children. What I feel is that my activism is a part of the fact that my grandmother felt like all children were her children. My mother felt a kinship with all people. And so they brought me up to do the same. Uh, For women coming up now, do what comes next. If you want something, go after it. Find community and find friends and love. It's all about love. It's all about loving other people enough to take the next step. And 
you know, and what is, is. <laughs> I think that's beautiful that's, advice to do the, the right thing. And especially because you're passionate about it. Right. The other thing is don't postpone joy in between in wounded knee when we were being shot at for days, there was the joy of the occasional ability to eat, you know, because we were under siege and we weren't getting regular meals. There was the joy of a brief ceasefire where everybody can, could come out and drunk in the middle of the worst things that are happening in the middle of cancer chemotherapy. I would pull off my wig at church and shock the hell out of people. Cause I thought <laughs> that was fun. Uh, yeah. So the other thing is find joy everywhere and don't postpone joy. We're back to my grandmother's motto. You know, there's no such thing as a bad orgasm. Love people passionately and learn till you die. Enjoy and enjoy life and learn things till you're, till you're dead. And then you never get old. I mean, I've never grown up. You may notice that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even fucking sit at the adult table anywhere. So. <laughs> <laughs> so that's who I am. And thank you guys so much. Oh, and thank you. you. This has been just a joy and a pleasure to talk to you, to learn from you, and to see your humbleness and um, indicating that it takes more than one person to make huge changes in the world. It takes communities and it's just been a really wonderful conversation. Thank Mm -hmm. you. Well, thank you. And as I said, I will email if, as soon as I find the emails, I will email you a picture of my hennaed head. (laughs) (laughs) Because that made, well, the thing is that it's a way to pull joy out of even the weirdest thing that you might be going through. In my case, it was chemo. Um, It was just, the woman who, who drove me to chemo, my friend Eva, drove me to chemo every time because she wouldn't let anybody else do it. My first day of chemo, I came home to the FBI wanting to question me for oh two hours. Gosh. After I'd been poisoned by professionals oh. for, for eight hours, um, I now came home to the FBI banging on my door and I had to get myself together, drive to the local diner and get questioned for two hours. That was in 2011-ish. And they were questioning me about wounded knee, which was in 1973, but they thought it was urgent and threatened to come interrupt my chemo the next day if I didn't talk to them. So mm-hmm. I talked to them. So, but, but I even had fun with that. I mean, it's, it was hilarious. It was like, you want to talk about people? Okay, fine. We'll talk about people. And so the, the only one I was willing to tell them anything about was my friend, Doc Rosen, because I never tell the FBI about anybody who's still alive, but Doc had died. So he was one of the major street medics. So, um, <laughs> so yeah, that was an, another, you know, adventure in what happens during chemo when you're not looking for it and what law enforcement can do to you if you, I was having chemo that day. I can't yeah. see why they didn't talk to me, but we got through it because that's what happens. But yeah, community and just being who you are. Don't be afraid to be who you are. Well, I love that, Anne. And on that note, I think that that is the perfect place to and to be who you are. And we want to say thank you to everyone for joining us today. And thanks again, Anne, to you for taking time to share your story with us. And thank you for having me. And I'll send you that picture. Our pleasure. And we can't wait to see it. As always, we're looking forward to sharing more stories soon. In the meantime, check out our website at herstepforward.com or follow us on Instagram at herstepforward for all the latest updates. 
If you'd like to reach out to us, shoot us a message on Instagram or email us at info at herstepforward.com. See you next time.